We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. When Cook County State's Attorney Kimberly Fox was elected in 2016, she was expecting to make waves and probably a few enemies as well. Nearly four years later, several of the reforms she promised are well underway, but the waves are probably bigger and the challenger is more numerous than anyone expected. It's time for a talk with the woman who made history getting to where she is today. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Fox became the first African-American woman to serve as Cook County State's Attorney when she challenged and beat two-term incumbent Anita Alvarez in the Democratic primary four years ago. Then the former chief of staff to County Board President Tony Preckwinkle went on to win the general election. Now, Alvarez was hampered by fallout from the Laquan McDonald case when a police officer fatally shot a knife-wielding teenager 16 times and was eventually convicted of second-degree murder. Kim Fox came into the office vowing to help restore trust in the justice system here, bring more transparency as well, and fairness. Along the way, there have been many inarguably positive changes, but also several challenges. And we're going to talk about much of that in this half hour. State's Attorney Kimberly Fox, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Um, Well, I guess if we've learned anything in the past few years is that one case can uh, help define your tenure or at least your path. For your predecessor, it was the more than a year long delay in bringing charges against the police officer who killed Laquan McDonald. For you, it's been the case of former Empire TV series actor Jesse Smollett, who was accused of faking a hate crime against him. Now, uh, for people who may not remember that name, and gosh, who doesn't by now, (laughs) uh, your office decided not to charge him, and that sparked anger from Mayor Emanuel and, for a time, Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson, who I hasten to say has has, has specifically not said anything about you uh, in this regard and says he likes the way the police work with the state's attorney's office. But the police union wanted your head, um, and critics call for a special prosecutor to investigate the crime and how you handled that. There is one of those. I'm betting that no one could have predicted everything that has happened with this one case. Uh, (laughs) I I certainly could not have predicted that. Um, You know, as I said back in March and continue to say, you know, the trust of the public and how our office operates is paramount to me. As you said in your introduction, I came into office um, when there was skepticism about the criminal justice system in the state's attorney's office. And certainly it's my belief uh, that our office should be fully transparent, should be accountable to the people that we serve. Um, And in the immediate aftermath of this case, I said we'd be open to a non-political review of how this case was handled. And we are pledging our complete uh, support to the special prosecutor in this case so that the public can know how we handled this case. I feel confident um, that the public will know that we've handled cases like this um, in the way that I said I would when when I came into office, that we would prioritize violent crime in this city, um, in this county, and that where we could for those cases that could be dealt with outside of the criminal justice system, we would do that. And so in line with those principles, you know, we've doubled down on addressing violent crime 
and used alternatives to prosecution um, where we can. Um, the one thing I want to add, and by the way, I should just for the information's sake mention or note that former federal prosecutor Dan Webb is the special prosecutor in the case, the one you will be cooperating with. Um, the one question, if you are able to, uh, to talk about this, um, given the investigation, is what turned a lot of this case on its head was a call from, uh, from uh, Tina Chen, who knew the Smollett family. To the extent that you can say anything, can you um, say why you took that call and later had to recuse yourself? So I can talk uh, to that point in particular. I talk to victims' families uh, of, of crimes all the time. I think, you know, Superintendent Johnson and I have talked about this. We've talked about cases um, before they've been charged. Um, I have been referred to victims um, who have not yet had cases charged yet all the time. That's the role of the prosecutor. And I think what's really vitally important is that in the reporting of this story is that at the point where I had that conversation, um, this person was considered a victim. Uh, the police superintendent uh, referred to him as a victim. In fact, the day that I had the conversation was on television referring to this person as a victim. And so it is not unusual for a prosecutor to take a call uh, regarding a victim uh, of a, a crime. I've taken calls like that from other elected officials. I've taken calls like that from moms who's had who've had unsolved homicides in their family. Um, and so it is part of the work that we do is that we talk to people um, who are victims of crime. Yeah, and, and in fact, doesn't your uh, office have a, a, a division specifically that deals with victims? Yes, we have a, a specialized unit called our Victim Witness Unit uh, that is made up of men and women who are dedicated to meeting, talking to victims, witnesses, hearing their concerns, connecting them to resources, um, helping them navigate the criminal justice system. And those services are offered even before uh, a case has been formally charged. But I think in the conversations that we've had about this one particular case, it may seem unusual that the state's attorney would engage in those conversations or that folks could reach out. We've tried to make this office as accessible as possible for everyone um, if they have concerns, and that's what happened here. Um, for whatever uh, sparked it, you now have probably more challengers than uh, than you you or anybody would have expected. There are two Republican candidates in the race to unseat you, two Democrats, uh, former Judge Pat O'Brien's in the GOP primary, and he got into the race saying that you don't have the experience or integrity to run for the office, given why what you said said and felt when you took the office um those kinds having to fight on that battlefield uh i mean how do you feel about that i'm really proud of the work that we've been able to do over the last four years we have been a national model for not only criminal justice reform but really advocacy on behalf of public safety uh, we were once known here in cook county as the false confession capital of the united states and our Conviction Integrity Unit, the unit that reviews wrongful convictions, has now been lauded as a national model. Uh, we have been the most transparent prosecutor's office in the country. We're the first prosecutor's office to make every case-level felony data information available to the public. We started that, and now there's a trend across the country doing that. 
We were working on bond reform. And now what we see, you know, as we are continuing to have debates here in Chicago and Cook County, states, whole states like California and New York are working on bond reform as a result of seeing what's happened here in Cook County. And so I'm very proud of the record that we've established. Um, It's not me uh, applauding myself. It is the national recognition that the Cook County State's Attorney's Office has gotten over the last four years that I think speaks to the work that has been done, not just by myself, but by the men and women of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Well, now, bond reform in and of itself uh, is is not a, a, a slam dunk for uh, for some people and has sparked a lot of uh, a lot of debate. Um, what I would like to do is is to to focus on. Uh, well, first off, is is at the core of a feud between yeah. the mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and the county board president, uh, Tony Preckwinkle. And it it revolves around gun violence, but it also revolves around what happens when people get in front of a judge and how a judge decides what kind of bail to give, whether to give bail, and and what happens from that point on. First, let's establish what the, what the philosophical <laughs> aim is here. Yeah, I think... All parties would, would agree, you know, the mayor is a former prosecutor, um, that the purpose of bail is to ensure public safety. And there is, again, a fundamental piece of American jurisprudence that people are innocent until proven guilty. And the bail system was established to ensure two things, that people who were a danger to the public um, were detained or people who were a flight risk were detained. And what was happening with cash bail was that we were seeing people who were not necessarily a danger to the public, not necessarily a flight risk, being being assessed bail amounts that they could not afford. And that is unconstitutional. That is not a Preckwinkle or Lightfoot or Fox policy. The Constitution says that you cannot impose excessive fines. And so the conversation around bail reform has always been about making sure that when we impose bail fines, that we're doing them for the right reasons and that we're ensuring public safety. So I think all parties would agree that the way that we were operating our our bail system previously was not in line with the constitutional values. I think we all also agree that people who are a threat to public safety should be detained and that those who are not should not be. Well, and what's happened and, and at the core of this, uh, the so-called feud, uh, has been Mayor Lightfoot's contention that when suspects, gun crime suspects, are arrested, some of them who would be otherwise considered dangerous are being either given high bail, which if you happen to be in the... Uh, the, the uh, drug trade, if and some people would be alleged to be in that, um, those people can afford high bail. If you get a $10,000 bond, that's $1,000 you have to put up. There are some people who can reach into their pockets and come up with that kind of money, um, as opposed to somebody giving a $100 bond and they, and they can't even okay. come up with, you know, 10. So how do you, what is preventing judges from letting people out who might be a danger, who might have had military-style weapons. And that's what the mayor was trying to show when she did a demonstration of, here, look at these guns. Uh, 
how do you keep those people? Because people want to feel safe. They they understand the Constitution, right. but they want the Constitution to also make sure that somebody isn't running around their streets with guns. I, and again, I think we all agree with that. I think the the complexity of talking about this issue is not something that can be done in sound bites, which is why I really appreciate um, being able to come on the show. Here. Yeah, it's perfect <laughs> uh, because I think in the soundbite universe, it is as though those it, we're pitting the Constitution versus public safety. You can actually do both. And I think the mayor is right that there are some folks who um, are engaged in behaviors that not that keep our communities unsafe and who are also of means to be able to pay their way out. And I think that it requires us to sit down and make sure that we're looking at all of those factors, that perhaps someone um, who is coming in on a gun charge, we still look at, well, what kind of gun did they have? What is their record? Who are their associates? What is the, what is the bigger, broader picture around this person that you can't just sum up um, in a 30-second hearing? And I think we all agree that we want to make sure that we're doing that. And we also recognize a sad reality is that, you know, we've had, you know, people who have dangerous jobs, for example, truck drivers who um, sometimes have to go through dangerous neighborhoods who may have a, a gun. And how do we discern between that person who truly fears for their public safety and that person who truly is a menace to the public? And having that nuanced conversation, I think, is what's really important. And I think lost in the last few weeks about this debate is that it is really complex and that we have to be thoughtful and bringing all of the parties together to say, how can we do this better is a necessity. It's not necessarily criticism without um, substance, but it also isn't that we're not on the right path. What the judges are using now, and I've admittedly I'm for now forgetting the the exact word that you yeah. use but it's so it's, I'm used to saying algorithms but yes. it's it's the public sa- public safety risk assessment tool the, <laughs> and those assessments do seem to have some of those factors in it but or in them but is it possible that there are some some gaps in there some loopholes I, I, loopholes the wrong word but but just some areas, gray areas, where a judge could make a ruling that this person is okay to let out, but there was something in there that probably should have said that that person should stay in. Listen, the risk assessment tool is a tool. Uh, It should not uh, take away from a judge's ability to use his or her, you know, legal analysis assessment of all of the facts um, and make their recommendations based on that. We have Judges who have been in the criminal justice system, who've presided over cases for years, um, who have insights that an algorithm just can't capture. And so we have to be able to recognize that the the tool is just that, um, but also have judges be able to discern um, from all of the evidence that's presented to them that sometimes they don't have to go with the tool. Um, sometimes the tool is right, but it also means probing, asking further questions. It may mean from our office presenting more evidence and information that would suggest that what the tool is recommending may not be best in this particular case. But the tool was not ever meant uh, to supplant the, the the judgment of a judge. The judge is the ultimate decider of who how bail is administered. Quick question here. How concerned are you that this discussion that we're talking about right now is going to either not happen or be lost amid what has become the politics of the public fight 
over this? I'm confident having known all of the parties involved that they share a, a, a concern about public safety and doing what is in the best interest of the people of Cook County. And my confidence is that is having worked with with both of them. You know, Lori served on my uh, transition committee, um, particularly talking about the issues of gun violence in Cook County. And as you mentioned, I previously worked for the president of the county board. So I know the intentions of both the mayor and the president of the county board. I know they both care very deeply about public safety, and I know they both want a resolution to this. And so I have no concern uh, that we'll be able to sit down and talk collectively and collaboratively about the best solutions for Cook County. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's Ad Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. Um, I do want to turn to another level of reform that has uh, made you a few uh, enemies, if not critics, or critics, if not enemies, I should say. Critics. (laughs) um, Because suburban police officials and the Fraternal Order of Police were criticizing you long before Jussie Smollett's yes. name was anything other than a character on uh, on Empire. Um, and they were suggesting that you were easing up on some crimes, uh, m- most notably retail theft. I remember I had the uh, chief of Riverside in here yes. uh, early on. Uh, and the issue is that you're not prosecuting at, the, at your level Crimes below what is it five hundred three three hundred uh, d- dollars uh, th- that are theft cases yeah um, and a lot of the suburban suburban departments uh, felt that well that's sort of like giving people a pass it, what what are you trying to do here when I came into office in December of two thousand sixteen it was the bloodiest year in Cook County in almost two decades. And when we sat and looked at the data about how we were using our resources at the state's attorney's office um, and what were our number one, you know, top five prosecuted offenses, what surprised me, given the fact that we had over 3,400 people shot in the city of Chicago alone, that we had over 760 homicides that year, the number one referred case for prosecution in the state's attorney's office was retail theft. And the reason for that, and it shocks people when I say it, is that Illinois has one of the lowest thresholds for felony retail theft in the country. We are one of, you know, in the bottom 10 percent of the of the felony threshold. What Indi- was it? Three hundred dollars. Three hundred dollars. In Indiana, it's seven hundred and fifty. In Wisconsin, it's two thousand. In Minnesota, it's a thousand. In Missouri, it's seven hundred and fifty. All of our neighbors have a higher retail theft threshold. And what you then realize is that we have this low threshold and we have these high incidents of violence, that it's not so much that we have more people who are engaging in this behavior. It's because the threshold is so low. So what we said was um, we were going to use our discretion to see if we can charge folks at the misdemeanor level, which was in line with what national trends were. And for those who stole $1,000 or had a lengthy record, we would charge at the felony level. I would also say, and I think we had this conversation last time I was Mm -hmm. here, you know, this conversation around the retail theft threshold has been something that even the former governor um, took up in his criminal justice uh, uh, reform committee. And there was a recommendation by that committee uh, of raising the felony retail theft threshold to $2,000. And so our delving into this 
and saying $1,000 was not out of line with what even the former Republican governor um, was suggesting as a remedy. What's the status of any of that right now? Of the legislative? Either the legislative or what you're doing at your own level. So on the legislative level, there is ongoing conversation, and I believe whether it's veto session or the next session, a legislation that would make Illinois more in line with the rest of the country on the retail theft thresholds. In our office, we are continuing, again, to prosecute cases. Anything under $1,000, it's not that those cases aren't prosecuted. They're prosecuted as misdemeanors as opposed to felonies. And what we found after 2016, every year since 2017, 2018, and right now this year, we are on track uh, that guns are the number one referred prosecution in Cook County. We have shifted our focus to those things that really undermine the public safety. Um, mass incarceration has been a major issue uh, for you, uh, for, for actually for everybody involved in this uh, this discussion. But as someone who covered the legislature for several years, you know, one of the problems, it seems to me, has been that a lot of people see stiffer sentences as a demonstration of, and, and high bail, for that matter, as a demonstration that we're getting tough on crime. And that if we if a crime, if we're upset about a particular kind of crime, we increase the penalties for it and we're done. And how how do you see that philosophy evolving? Do you see it starting to abate? I think we're starting to have real conversations about criminal justice. I think what we've seen in, in the past and is these pounding on the table and rhetoric about toughness or softness. And what gets lost in there is what are the ramifications of this? Where we find ourselves at the incarceration levels that we've seen when we look back in hindsight is that there's these knee-jerk reactions to criminal justice that is not rooted in research or data, um, but is rooted in politics. And I think where we've come in Illinois that I'm particularly proud of is that our legislators have been very thoughtful about what is the long-term impact. What is going to happen 10 years from now as a result of the policies that we're enacting? I think the work that we've seen around the marijuana legislation, for example, and legalization is the fact that we're going to have to start expunging thousands and thousands of records for an offense that is now legal and will benefit some um, by the millions and reconciling, hey, when we look at a policy, whether it's enhancing a sentence, whether it's adding um, another criminal enhancement, what's the real impact? What are we solving for? And not how are we going to go back and tell people we're being tough? Mm. Um, and you made the transition to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is that you are um, already moving to uh, vacate the cases against people who basically it was low-level marijuana charges. Mar uh, recreational marijuana will be legal after January 1. Uh, but what, explain what's going on now. Sure. Uh, back in January of this year, we in the state's attorney's office had decided that we were going to move to vacate the convictions of those who had marijuana possession cases of 30 grams or less. Uh, we set out back in February uh, in, in conversations with a group called Code for America, 
which is a non-for-profit out of California, who's a tech company that does social good. And what Code for America does is they bring the infrastructure to be able to go in, look at data sets and identify people who have these convictions and generate the necessary paperwork, if you will, for us to go into court and have those convictions vacated. Now, as you just pointed out, this is not something that your office can do by itself. That's right. Uh, how, uh, how is that going to work? What's good? I mean, it's, is it, how are you going to feed the data to them? And, and how do you get it back where you can go into court and, and do thousands of cases? Yeah. So we have the fortune of Code for America had already started this work in California in San Francisco and then Los Angeles and other counties. And so we were able to take their blueprint and bring it here. We'd been in ongoing conversations with the Illinois State Police, who is the keeper of the most comprehensive records. We'd been in conversation with Chief Judge Evans um, and Clerk Brown uh, from the very beginning as we were working through the mechanics of a memorandum of understanding um, and talked about how we would work collectively to get this done. Because it does require, it's not the state's attorney who has the ability to vacate the convictions. The judge is the ultimate um, person who signs off on that. And so from the very beginning of our conversations, we've involved all of the parties to work collaboratively and are very excited that Cook County um, is ahead of the rest of the state and being able to be ready to do this. Um, is part of it going to be because you, you I don't think for the number of cases that you have, you could have a separate hearing for every case. So are you going to be able to do them in in mass, yeah, yes. Oh. So the the goal is to be able to have a dedicated call, uh, to be able to come into court, um, and ha- go before a judge and do them, um, in bulk. Uh, but each case has to be heard on its own. And so we're working with the chief judge right now on what that looks like and how we do it. Do you have any idea of when the mechanism will be in place to to do this? We are ahead of the game. Uh, you know, step one is being able to get the data and the Illinois State Police have been incredible partners with us in providing us that information. And so now we have to work with Code for America to make sure that the data is clean um, and then continue, as I said, to work with the chief judge. So the fact that we're in the process of getting that data and having the data analyzed uh, puts us far ahead of the game. Uh, we certainly hope to have this ready uh, to go by the time the legalization happens on January 1st. What's the next frontier for your office? Uh, what are what what are you what What's the next thing that you're working on? You know, we're going to continue our efforts around gun violence. We we have, you know, the Gun Crime Strategies Unit, which is a unit that I'm very proud of that didn't exist before I came into office. Where because we've shifted our resources from some of these lower level offenses, we've been able to take our assistance out of the courtroom and into some of our most violent police districts. We started in the 7th and the 11th police districts in Inglewood and Harrison on the west side. Um, And we've now expanded into five districts and we're hoping to expand into others. And what we found is we have a partnership with CPD, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, on building strong cases, identifying the drivers of violence in those police districts. Just earlier this year in the 10th district that saw one, um, a a large reduction in the number of cases that were violent crime, and a strong increase in the number of gun cases that were being charged, that our work is effective. So we want to continue to broaden the work that we're doing on using data and analytics to go after the drivers of violence. Um, We want to be able to continue to broaden our partnerships and relationships 
uh, with the people in the community so they feel comfortable and safe working with our office uh, to fight crime. And, and let me turn it around very quickly. We only have uh, just about a minute, maybe a little less. Uh, how do you also make sure that people aren't being rushed through the system if they do find themselves caught up in it? You know, we are thoughtful from day one. I mean, one of the things to to answer that, you know, we've bolstered our conviction integrity unit and rushing through systems can have dire consequences. In the time that I've been in office, our conviction integrity unit has vacated the convictions of almost 80 men and women. And so learning the lessons from vacating convictions to ensure that we have practice and, and protocols in place now to eliminate that is one of the things that we take as a top priority. That's going to be the final word. Kimberly Fox, Cook County State's Attorney, thank you. Thank you. For being here. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's WBBMnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I will be back next week with another edition of At Issue. I hope you will be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T Mobile.com.